So today I'm here with Scott Ruick, who is one of the founders of NetBlue, which today is um, merged with Vendari and is now Conexus. And um, Scott's going to share a little bit about the story of, of, of how they got going and, and how things, how, how it all happened, and also tell us a little bit about uh, getting funding and, and about buying companies. So, uh, Scott, you want to tell, give us a, a very brief intro, and we'll, we'll get going. Yeah, Adrian, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate the time. Um, I, you know, I, I always preface these types of things by saying how fortunate I am to be in the space. I think it's a great space that I've fell into uh, almost by accident and uh, and um, you know I was lucky enough to be uh, early early stage in companies and see how the industry's progressed over the last six years and seven years or so um, so I'm just I'm happy to I'm, ha- I'm really happy to be part of the space so um, you you guys um, you it was you and Ken Chan that originally uh, got NetBlue started and it had different names before it really got going. You want to tell us a little bit about how how you you initially got started and and sort of how it evolved. I mean, was it the two of you just working out of a basement? Yeah, you know, um, Ken and I first got involved um, when uh, I was involved with Meta Award. Um, you know, he uh, was in early stages building a company uh, called Your Free DVDs, which was a, a company that was in the business of giving away DVDs for consumers, uh, taking a variety of different actions. And he'd gotten that going, um, essentially with not a lot of money, um, out of his, his, his room in San Jose. And, um, you know, we, we, we recently met on that basis. Um, I was lucky enough to come in very, very early in the company's development. We were, you know, we were very young. We had probably a total of about four or five people, um, in the company at the time. Um, and uh, you know, my first my first desk was um, you know an IKEA plastic desk out of his uh, out of his office in his bedroom. And um, you know, I had a three month old little girl and a lot of reason to succeed. And, and so that's you know that's generally the beginning of it. Um, and so uh, so you you guys so Ken basically start you were you were working at another company called Meta Reward, and and Ken got things going then with um, what what became NetBlue. He came to you and said, "Hey, do you want to come on board?" And I would, I would imagine, was that because of your media, media buying capability? And then, so you then um, joined, and then were working out of his, out of his uh, office slash house on the plastic, plastic table. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean something like that. I mean, you know, in the position that I was in at Meta Reward, being one of the earlier affiliate networks, I was, I was privy to a lot of, uh, a lot of successful marketing techniques that I saw uh, manifest themselves through the affiliates that I had and that I was working with. And so I was able to understand, you know, why people were making money, how they were doing it, um, as I was promoting many of the offers through them. And so I think what Ken saw in me was an ability to um, to see what, what, what the most successful marketing te- techniques were at that time. Um, um, you know, Meta Award didn't really buy media per se, but we really had a lot of um, a lot of interactions with uh, very uh, high quality, great clients. Help us understand, you know, uh, what was working, what wasn't working. So, you know, I think when Ken and I met, it was it was it was the fact that um, I've always considered myself an entrepreneur, and um, I had a lot of valuable expertise on how to make his campaigns that much more successful. Right. So Ken had some campaigns running. You had the experience on how those work, so you jumped in 
and, and help to make those run better. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think early people back in the space in 2001, 2002 were trying any number of things. And so I was just fortunate enough to uh, kind of be able to peek behind the curtains and see what, what was actually working and converting, not just because Meta Reward had a site called Netflix, which in essence was doing something very similar with cash, but also I could see best practices from the, you know, uh, thousand affiliates that we, that we, uh, that we, uh, acquired uh, over a period of time so I could understand who was doing what and how they were doing it and, and get a better insight as to how uh, you know how uh, how can could be successful so when you when you came up what were some of the sorts of things that you started helping with well you know um, when we started um, you know uh, we uh, we didn't have a lot of media buying I mean we were really doing some affiliate network um, media buying through folks like Commission Junction and and really, we began in earnest to get distribution for the offers, which at that point in time, you know, we were giving away DVDs um, to uh, consumers for doing a variety of actions. And so, um, you know, the first order of business was to expand distribution. So um, what we did was, um, you know, I took my contacts and we began to grow the business by uh, expanding distribution. Um, one of the key things we did, and I think we were one of the first to do it, was really get distribution through other affiliate networks um, by helping them promote um, their offers. And that may not sound, I can rephrase that in a way that may make more sense, but uh, the main source of distribution for us back in the day was Adtractive. Uh, Adtractive both became a place where we advertised and we also became a publisher of Adtractive. So, uh, you know, we, 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 we kind of coined the term private offer network where they were heavily promoting our offers to their affiliates. In return, uh, the offers that we promoted on the page were all theirs. So it really helped them on two fronts. It helped them earn margin on a, uh, in such a way that they were promoting our offers to other affiliates. And similarly, we were driving an awful lot of volume to their advertisers such as Columbia House, Netflix, uh, these types of folks. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Um, you know, if not, email me. And if anyone can email me, and I'm happy to explain in more detail how that actually got off the ground. But that was our first big success in terms of distribution. Um, so, so let me let me see if I can make clear here. You're you're then like you're taking offer and off, offers out of out of someone's network or offers offers for a publisher. You're running those offers as part of what you're doing for NetBlue, and then you're getting them to help you drive that traffic. So they're getting commissions on you um, driving traffic for them as well as commissions on, on the, the offers that you're driving at the same time. Is, I, maybe that's not a very clear explanation either, but does that make sense? No, you, you absolutely got it, Adrian. And one of the things that allowed them to do was offer, um, present our offer, which was in those days it was typically a dollar, dollar twenty-five submission or email submit at little to no margin to their publishers because they were then making up the volume by us doing offers through Columbia House. So these of the other ad networks, the offer that we promoted came out very high because Adtractive decided to take a little to no margin quite wisely. And so we got an awful lot of distribution, and in return we promised that any leads that came through the door would all be redirected towards their back-end advertisers. So 
we kind of coined the term private offer network. Um, and so that, that relationship really, um, you know, drove the way to a lot of similar type uh, distribution arrangements down the road. How, how are you making money on that? What kind of, um, what kind of money is in that for NetBlue? Well, um, I'm sorry, do you mean when, uh, when I left NetBlue or? I'm talking like as you're getting started with this. So you're basically grouping a bunch of offers together at the same time and then, and driving traffic to them, all of them, and then customers are picking out the offer that they, they like the best. Um, that then, because the, the, the customer selected that, they leads to an overall higher effective CPM. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean the, um, the the model really worked. I mean, you know, we um, we 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 played with it quite a bit. We looked at incentives and, and and offer types, but you know, in general, the model worked. We were finding that we were distributing the offer for you know anywhere between a dollar to you know two dollars and effectuating you know north of two to two to three dollars. So, you know, when we could figure out the correct mousetrap that elicited the consumer response we wanted. The, the the main issue at that point became scaling it, and so that leads me to, you know, the second area where we really scaled was we were one of the first guys to really embrace CPM advertising. Um, what we found was even back in that those days there was heavy competition for these types of offers, and so nobody at this point began to seriously contemplate doing CPM buying because. Uh, a, the onus becomes on you at that point. In other words, if your creative doesn't work, you lose, not the publisher on a CPA basis. So, you know, that, that began a relationship, uh, of CPM buying. We started off with Microsoft, um, probably in, God, 2003 with a $10,000 campaign buy. And by the time we were done, we were probably spending $700,000 a month over a period of a few years. And so you, when you did that first buy, how did that work out? You spent ten grand. What did you get back? Well, you know, what's interesting about Microsoft was back in the day, I mean, they were commonly viewed as the most difficult to work with. But in this example, they had a program called P+, which allowed guys like us, which they believed in, to operate kind of on a modified CPA basis. So, you know, that was really surprising to us because, um, you know, the, the common perception that Microsoft and particularly Hotmail was, was very, very difficult to work with. Um, I think large degree our success predicated itself on on having a, a sales rep that had been there for a number of years and knew the space. And so, you know, the $10,000 ad buy, we got crushed. We got crushed for the first six months of the relationship. No, I wouldn't say six months. I'd say probably three months we got crushed. But one of the things that I appreciate what Ken did so much was he set the mandate that if we were going to succeed as a company, we had to be the ones that embraced and consumed CPM advertising um, or we'd die. So the entire company rallied around embracing CPM advertising, what that meant. It meant that you had to be a creative organization. You had to get banners that clicked. Um, you know, you had to watch the campaigns much, much differently than if you were promoting a CPA campaign. So, you know, we held hands with Microsoft early on, and, and we, we lost a little, and they, they gave us a chance, and that relationship really grew up uh, quite nicely over the years. So the fact that you guys embraced CPM early on, that was a critical thing. Had you not done that, you would you, NetBlue wouldn't have become NetBlue. Yeah, no, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, Adrian. I mean, there's, there's any number of smaller, um, you know, uh, uh, incentive-based sites that had done, you know, um, 
done okay, but um, you know, our ability to really scale and change the game was predicated on the idea of buying media differently than everybody else. And it was a big risk, but what we found was once we did it successful, successfully, uh, predictably, um, you know, other companies joined suit. Um, you know, if, if we're buying $200,000, $300,000 a month on fast click on a CPM basis, you can imagine that our competitors uh, uh, w- would like to jump in there as well, and they did. Um, with everything online, uh, most things online, uh, the numbers are very apparent to most people, and, and seeing how things work or don't work becomes, um, if you have the right eye for it, a lot uh, a lot easier than most people think. And so how long after you guys started uh, working heavily at CPM that other people came in? You know, not too much longer. I, I'd say, you know, the, the one that came in the quickest was, was, was a gentleman named Nunu who ran the Useful. So, um, you know, as we began to scale up on places like... Um, uh, fast click in these types of places. Um, I think he, he he took notice very quickly and began to uh, you know emulate our model uh, quite successfully actually. Um, so um, you know I would say it was no more than a few months before um, we began to see similar campaigns um, and I mean similar almost very similar <laughs> exceedingly similar campaigns show up alongside our campaigns on places like fast click which we. Uh, you know, we had um, we had really been able to scale in addition to to the uh, to the Microsoft campaign. And so this was also um, around the time when CPM rates had dropped because of the the, the dot com implosion, all that sort of stuff. So you were then coming in. The publishers were saying, "No, screw this. We, even though we're getting low CPM rates, we don't care. We, we're not going to do CPA." And and so there was kind of a void, which you guys think is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we became proficient, I think, at, at um, you know, the three main ways that things are priced online, CPA, CPC, and CPM. We became proficient at both types of buying. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, there weren't a lot of advertisers, quite frankly, advertising on a CPM basis. And so while these publishers had massive amounts of inventory, um, you know, they were they, they were holding as steady as they could um, uh, to for, to, uh, to 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 keep their rate cards, but if you know who to talk to and you knew um, you knew how to navigate yourself around organizations like Microsoft or Yahoo or any one of these places, uh, you'll find ways to buy rented inventory uh, exceedingly inexpensive. Um, and so we were also um, one of the things that we did was we were able to put up large dollar amounts. Uh, you know. Many of these bigger sites we found got, were quite frustrated dealing with smaller ad buys such as 5K or 10K. So we realized this was a defensibility um, position, so we were able to put up things like 50K or 100K and uh, therefore get all that inventory and uh, box out our competitors. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you hit it. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of cheap inventory um, back in the day, and I think I see something similar now with Places like Facebook and MySpace generating massive amounts of inventory every day. A lot of cheap inventory out there. Let's, uh, let's talk about, you, you gave an example of Yahoo. So let's say someone off the street wants to go and start buying volume on Yahoo. You're saying back then they were getting tired of getting approached with 5 to 10K buys. Um, you, so your approach would be to come in and, and give Yahoo a $50,000 check to get started? Or like, how would you get things rolling? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know we were able to successfully... Um, um, uh, explain to them our, our buying position over places like their competitor, 
um, Microsoft and Hotmail, and we were willing and able to devote large dollar amounts. So we at one point struck a a year deal with Yahoo for I think it was neighborhood of five hundred or six hundred thousand dollars. And you know when you talk in terms of those amounts, you get people interested, you get people listening to you. Um, the challenge they had was a lot of inventory and a lot of small CPM buys of five and ten thousand dollars, which really didn't move the ball. So we wanted to make a you know a, put a, put a put a put a foot put a put a stake down and say you know we're willing to invest a lot of money, but it's got to be into the you know it's got to be at a, at, a, at a price and a rate and a positioning that makes sense to us. So that was, uh, I think that that uh, helped us quite a bit in terms of being able to scale the kind of business we were doing. And so you'd come. What would you start with as a as a as a uh, initial buy with Yahoo? How much would you get started with them? You know, I think we probably started with twenty five or fifty k. Um, you know, we, we had a good understanding of what creatives work, what sites, uh, what campaigns work the type of uh, prices we should be paying, the type of click-through rates we should expect. So, you know, we walked in with an awful lot of knowledge, and we were quickly quickly able to ascertain based on placement, based on um, creator type, you know, campaigns that work versus don't work. And so if you have built that infrastructure to be able to do that, you're able to quickly turn around and take unprofitable campaigns and make them profitable. So, you know, I think we probably started on Yahoo Mail, um, Buying, you know, 88 by 31s or 468 by 60s, um, and then, you know, as you make that, those those placements and those campaigns successful, you go on to other parts of Yahoo. Um, we even, I think, purchased a, you know, a one-day homepage on Yahoo buy for 20 or 30 thousand uh, dollars at some point. Um, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, I think that's how we started. Hmm. And so at that sort of point, what percentage of your Traffic was coming from CPA versus CPC versus CPM. You know, CPC for us was always pretty light. I think um, more recently we've done more volume on it. But, but back in you know 2004, 2005, I'd say that probably um, there was a good stretch where probably 60 to 70 percent of our buys were done on a CPM basis, and uh, probably 30 percent was done on a CPA basis. Um, but we were we really wanted to embrace um, CPM advertising as as uh, as a way to move forward. I think uh, publishers take you seriously. They take care. Of, they, they, they they think you're a more serious buyer if you're doing CPA CPM buying versus CPA. And so we wanted to be viewed in that light. So what were you using to do all your ad ser- ad serving on? Well, you know, it's, it's, we, we didn't have a lot. I mean, I know later in the development we used fast click system, but I mean, generally put, we we relied heavily on the publishers' uh, ad serving system. So, a typical campaign would be if we had a Yahoo buy on on uh, Yahoo Mail, and the placement was a 468 by 60, we would get over to them 10 pieces of creative, and we would target them all and, and track them all separately. Uh, through a proprietary service we had, um, and uh, you know they would serve them. And as they served them, and the data came in, we would you know create these spreadsheets that looked at um, impressions and clicks and click-throughs and, and landing page submissions and and how far it got in our path and tended to uh, tie revenue to those various bits of the path, and then back into um, what ended up being either a profitable or unprofitable campaign. 
Um, the unprofitable ones, we had a plan of action to mitigate our losses, and so we would change the creative. We would um, negotiate a lower price, um, and that was the game that we played. And so you just you'd analyze it all against the numbers all the way through, and then and then do what works. Now you you, you said you were doing some using some proprietary tools. Did you write your own ad server to serve this stuff and track it? No, we didn't have so much ad serving. We had um, we had really reporting. Um, a gentleman named John Frisbee, who is I consider to be quite a genius in the space, um, really built the reporting system that um, I think even probably still exists today over at Connexus. Um, but he was able to build a system that gave us the ability to track just about any number of events as they happen. So I knew when a user hit my page, I knew where he came from, the campaign, the page. We would uh, we would scroll through multiple landing pages in an effort to get highest conversion. So uh, he basically built a tool that allowed us to do what we did on the media buying side. So then, so then you had this company, you had things going. You, you guys had made you guys going to do CPM buying. Um, that's working. Money's coming in. You know you've designed a model that's scalable. And and at what point did you then decide to go and raise uh, uh, money to grow the, the the business? Well, it was interesting, Adrian, because it seems like there was a a shift um, in the venture community where many of them all of a sudden began to look at lead generation and realize how much money we were all making. Um, but, I mean, it was, it, was, it was odd. You know, in the course of a week, we probably had three different venture capitalists knock on our door where before we hadn't seen or heard from anybody. Um, so, you, you know, the space all of a sudden got very, very hot. And we, um, we looked around and we interviewed a number of different venture capitalists and tried to figure out what we could do with money and, and where we could expand to. And I credit Ken with, with really being able to tell the story of what NetBlue did and where it was going. And so um, at some point through a period of time, we decided to take venture capital and, um, and scale the business accordingly. So why did you decide to do it that way? Why not just... Um I mean, you, it's lead generation, there's money in it, it's, it's a profitable business right from the start. Why not just scale it up and then own the entire business yourselves? Why did you make the decision to, to raise funds? Well, I think, you know, there's a long tradition in the Valley of companies raising money and, um, and being able to do much, much larger things outside of just a couple entrepreneurs working out of, their, out of an office. I mean, we, like many entrepreneurs, um, bought in on, on the idea that, um, y- you know, venture allows you to scale much, much quicker than your competitors, so you're in a very competitive spot. You can choose to end up being 100% owner of a $5 million a year business or a 20% owner of a $50 million a year business. So, you know, we believe that by taking venture capital, we could both attract the kind of talent we thought we needed to expand the business. We would have... Uh, cash in the bank to make purchases or make key acquisitions or invest in projects we thought were worthwhile. Um, you know, we were able to attract a different type of talent. Uh, venture-backed companies tend to, let's just say, get get more serious attention. Um, and also, you know, the, the belief that the venture guys are out there actively trying to help your company. So they bring a Rolodex of people that they think would benefit your company and they're thinking of 
exits and all kinds of interesting things while you're building the business. So it helps from a lot of different angles. Um, and, and do you think in hindsight that you needed it? You know, we didn't need it, right? I mean, we were running a successful, profitable, small business. Um, we probably had at that time about 20 or 30 employees. Um, so we clearly didn't need it. I think we wanted it, though. I mean, we, we took a look at what what was being offered to us, and we decided that that was the best way to go. I mean, we clearly could have made the decision to run our company um, in a way that we thought was best and, and keep it small and, and grow that business. But I think Ken, myself, and a gentleman named Derek Pilt decided that uh, we were going to make a bigger run at it and try to do something bigger than just the three of us. So that was the uh, the bet we made. How much money did you raise? I'm sorry? How much money did you raise? We raised $20 million from Oak Investment Partners, um, which was uh, quite a bit of money back in the day. I think in, our, in the space that we were in, we were one of the first guys to raise that kind of money. So, I mean, you you and, and, and then you knew a competitor were around at about the same time. I don't think he took any money. He scaled everything himself, didn't he? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the, the name that you mentioned. You knew? Yes, that's right. He didn't. Um, you know, he chose a, a little bit different path. I think he um, he was more intent on running the business, um, you know, himself and without raising money. And um, but that's correct. Yeah. And so, um, in hindsight, what do you think were the, the key benefits you got from having raised the money? Well, like I said, I think we were able to um, we were able to um, uh, attract a, a level of talent that we may not have before. Um, I think we were able to scale the business. So, if you know you could only afford this month to do a hundred thousand dollar buy on Yahoo, but it was profitable, now you had the resources to do a five hundred thousand dollar buy because uh, you had money in the bank. Um, you know, the, the venture firm to offer us, offered us some liquidity, so we were able to take some cash off the table, which played a role in our decision. Um, so, I mean, the money got put to good use. It allowed us to get more great people. It allowed us to scale the business. Um, it allowed us to do any number of things that we probably wouldn't have been able to do, do, or it would have taken us quite a bit longer to do had we self-funded the entire thing. Do you, do you think that NetBlue would have reached the scale that it reached uh, funding? Uh, without funding, you know, it probably would have. It probably would have taken us a bit longer, um, a bit longer to do. Um, but but I think we probably would have gotten there eventually. Sure. And you know, you need an example. The useful is an example of someone who who I think rivaled us in terms of size, um, but virtually did it um, self-funding. So. Uh, I'd like to think that we were as good as Nunu and, and the useful, so I think we probably would have would have gotten there uh, would have gotten there over time. All right. And so when you, I mean, I'm really interested then as you took the money in and then you were able to start doing these five hundred thousand dollar buys through Yahoo and some of these others. Did this? I mean, did the useful look at that? I mean, are they like, oh man, these guys in Silicon Valley are kicking our ass? Or did, did they, I mean, were, were you able to go and beat them out in a lot of stuff? Did it make a big noticeable, noticeable difference to the? speed and scale that you got at that time? Well, it's, it's a really great question. I mean, it's, it's um, <laughs> I, I think in hindsight, 
it did good and it did bad. In other words, you know, what it allowed Nuna to do was probably um, more visibly see what we were doing and copy us. Um, thing that, that I think that, that any company that struggles past um, 10 or 20 people faces is that you, you, you at some point take your eye off the ball. And this is where I think Nuna was able to do quite well was he was able to stay intimately involved in the business as as this thing scaled. So, you know, the challenge in any growing business is taking your eye off the ball and and working on other initiatives. I think Nuna was was very, very good at seeing what we were doing um, and being able to take advantage of the fact that, you know, now we had 70 employees. And with that 65th employee that was now in charge of media buying as good as Nunu? And the answer is no. So, you know, I think we provided a pretty good roadmap for him um, to uh, to copy us and to do quite well. Um, and, again, I don't say copying in a negative way. I think we... Uh, we in the direct marketing space look for what works, and if we can find a competitor that, that, that does what works, I think uh, we'll be the first ones lined up to try it as well. And so so you went from 20 employees to 70 employees in a pretty short period of time after you got funded. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, rather than looking at the, the minutia of successful media buying, your attention turns to hiring and HR policy and uh, you know, any number of small things that burden down entrepreneurs as they scale a business. And so that's, you know, again, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing, right? You actually had to spend time figuring out HR policies. I'm sorry? You actually had to spend time figuring out HR policies. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you scale a company to a sufficient size and or you take money from a third party uh, and they, in essence, become your partners because they now own part of your company. Um, you begin to create the company as they'd like to have it set up, which is, I guess, standard in many, many of these examples. So, you know, you begin to create companies that venture capitalists find are either easy to sell or fit their model or um, standard standardize things quite a bit. So, you know, Rather than doing more media buying, perhaps you're buying an HR manager and you're doing um, you're hiring recruiters to actively recruit for you. So you begin to kind of take the shape of uh, what a venture company wants you to look like, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. So they were helping prepare you to be sold and, and grooming the company in a way so that if you're going to be sold or you're going to IPO or whatever's going to happen, that you're set up and you, you, you have all the things already in place. That's right. So I think, you know, we probably, for the first time in our history, we're audited. Um, you know, when you run a small business and you're running in this space, you don't think too much about financials outside of are we making money or not. So we began to, you know, organize our books a lot differently. We had accountants and financial planners and CTOs and, or CFOs and uh, start to organize our books in such a way that, uh, became industry standard or became more palatable to someone who wants to buy you. So a lot of time is spent on changing not just the culture of the company because you've now gone from, you know, you may know everyone intimately and are friends with everyone there to a company of 70 where you, know, you don't know everybody and things are moving pretty quickly. So a lot of scaling a company is really difficult because entrepreneurs spend an awful lot of time in areas that, you know, they may not be good at, number one, but number two, 
uh, they don't like to do. So did you, I mean, so one, that was one of the, the other key benefits then. The money came in and it helped uh, get the company groomed to be sold. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think you, you know, you don't, you don't consciously build a company to get sold. I mean, I think that's, that's the first thing you talk about, but I think, you know, you do, you do begin to create a company that, um, that looks like any other great company and is, is, is standardized and, and, uh, and so people understand what they're dealing with. Um, and so does that then? Did you, you mentioned about focusing? Do, do you felt that? Do you feel that that uh, defocused the company once you brought the money on? Oh, no question. I mean, and that's you know, it's definitely not a unique problem. But but no question. I mean, I mentioned earlier. I, I believe that's how Lulu, uh, the useful, was able to compete quite successfully with us because you do lose focus. Um, again, rather than staring at spreadsheets all day and. In, in, in figuring out click-through differences on a particular campaign with a placement, um, you know, you spend time hiring new people or you spend time uh, in meetings uh, with boards or trying to, you know, report numbers or such. So it, it is terribly, dis, you know, it, it does disfocus you. And, and all you can hope for is that you can train a set of people underneath you that think and act and do what you do or have done successful to get to that point. And in some cases you're able to, in some cases you're not, but um, it does require an awful lot of work to be able to scale past yourself. But don't, I mean, that sort of stuff at the same time is also good, isn't it? I mean, a lot of companies have successfully come out of Silicon Valley. There is a, they have a system in place for growing companies. That's, it's, it can't be all bad. No, no, it, it's great. I mean, when, it, when it's done right, um, you get to scale in ways that your competitors can't hope to scale. You begin to b- build the sensibility. You you begin to get the great things about, you know, uh, a quickly growing company um, that you don't get if you're two guys in a bedroom. So when done correctly, absolutely, it makes, you know, a ton of sense. Everyone, you know, companies, successful companies have, have done it for the Long before uh, before we did it, um, so yeah. By all means, if you do it well and you do it right, um, you definitely reach the the benefits of it. And and so, in hindsight, would you have still taken money or no money at all, or would you maybe take a smaller amount, like five million instead of twenty? Boy, um, that's a great question. I I think. Let me just say this. I think at the time we did it. It made the most sense. Um, you know, would I do it today? Hard to say. You know, really, really hard to say. I don't like to, to, to second-guess these things, but but at the time we made the decision, I think we all felt comfortable that it was the right thing to do. Um, in hindsight, I can't say. Well, I, I don't know whether I'd do it again or not. All right. All right. Um, so now we've talked a little bit about what you went through in, in getting funding. I mean, do you want to tell us a little bit about how someone does go out and get funding. I mean, in, in, in this case, you had guys coming to you. Um, let's say if you're a startup or you, you, you've got things going reasonably well, revenues are working, um, and, and the, the companies decided that they really do want more money. They've made the decision to, that they do want money to, to grow faster. How should they go about raising it? Well, I mean, um, I guess your first point is, is what I'd say initially is, is that, you know, focus on building a great company, number one, which you've kind of just hit on. I mean, 
you've got to you've got to basically build them something that is of interest, and it tends to revolve around being able to tell a big story around a in a, in a particular vertical that happens to be growing, and you've got revenues attached to it, and you're profitable. I mean, these are the basics I think you need to do before you can actually look seriously about raising money. Um, in my opinion, or at least raising money in a manner that protects the entrepreneur's interest. Um, you know, I think once you've done that, there is really no shortage of ways you can go. I mean, there are, sure, venture guys everywhere. It's sometimes as simple as picking up a phone and setting up a meeting. Um, there are investment banks that will represent you and shop your deal around. Um, I even understand there's, there's ways you can do that uh, online. A friend of mine was showing me a website that, unfortunately escapes me now, which lists Internet businesses for sale uh, in a range of 3 to $5 million. Um, so there's really no shortage of, of money out there. Um, it really comes down to what you think the money is going to be used for, what you want to do with it, and, and how you think it's going to affect your business. So, um, you know, boy, just lots of ways to go for money. It really depends on, on kind of what you want to do with it and the types of people that you feel comfortable working with, the types of conditions that you think are appropriate for for you or your partner, um, types of things. So what would you look for? Let's say you, you want to raise 5 or $10 million. Um, What do you look for in a VC? You, you look for a match in terms of the, the, the style of the VC and the kinds of investments they have. You look for a personality match. What, are the, what kind of things uh, would be red flags for you that would make you say, hey, these are not the right guys. Even though they're offering us money, we're not going to take it. I think if they didn't have a history in the sector would be the first thing. I mean, if 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 they're a, a bank that does bio, or there's a, a venture fund that does biotech deals and um, solar energy, and you're in the lead gen space, that ought to be a, a big big red flag for you. I think you know personality wise, um, are these people that you feel understand the space. Maybe not as good as you, but certainly understand and appreciate the space and the dynamic nature of it uh, would be the second thing. Um, you know, is the, is the investment either too big or too large for them? Are they making, you know, an investment of, of $5 million when their normal deal size is $100 million? And, you know, once that ink is dry, you'll never see that venture capital again. Um, or conversely, are you a huge play for them? Um, so does your deal look like... Deals they've done in the past would be something I'd look for as well. Um, you know, maybe even past successes. Is it, is it a venture firm that has shown over time they can shepherd entrepreneur into selling his company or going public or eliciting some type of liquidity event? Um, so, you know, any number of things that I think one ought to consider when um, raising money. I mean, when you raise money, you basically somebody hops in bed with you and they're your new partner. So. You know, I would just say choose that partner well because that that will dictate to some degree the success of your company. All right. Any anything else you want to add on the on the topic of, of raising money? I mean, I know it's a topic you know a lot about. I'm I'm uh, trying to think of things to ask you that are that are good questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, uh, that's kind of you, David. I don't know that I, that I know a lot about. I've, I've been a part of seeing money being raised for a couple different companies, and, you know, I was a part of money being raised, um, you know, fairly recently. But, um, 
You know, I'd say take your time. I mean, it's a, it's a big decision to make. It's a lifestyle decision. Do you want, you know, do you want to have 100 employees or are you pretty happy with 10? Um, do you want to have board meetings where you're, you know, basically reporting financials or do you want to, you know, run out of Quicken and not worry about it? So it's an important decision to make. I would just say that if you're blessed with having a successful, profitable country, uh, a company, pardon me, it's, um, it's a good problem to have. But just, I'd say approach it carefully. That's, maybe that kind of also illustrates an interesting difference between uh, you and then some other companies. You you mentioned examples of um, p- uh, people being late sending checks and you're getting checks for like a million dollars that were, you know, it, it sounded like some of the other companies in the space were a little disorganized, whereas I guess you guys got very corporate and organized and on top of all that stuff. Yeah, we sure did. I mean, we definitely got a lot more corporate, which, um, you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It, it, did it take them on the final of it? I think so. I mean, we a lot of fun, crazy stuff went on when you're a small company. Um, we would get checks. You know, I, I gave you the story earlier of getting a check for, I think, about $750,000 from, uh, from a particular partner where it was written out of his mother's checking account. So, I mean, really fun, weird stories like that tend to slowly disappear as you begin to get more corporate and you begin to standardize a lot of this stuff. Did you find that that changed your did you work like did your work hours decrease as it became less fun? I'm sorry, would you repeat that? Did that change how you approached work? I mean did you work less hours as as you became more corporate like that? No, I don't think so. I think you just the the, the roles changed. You know, like I, I think that that, that um that the roles just changed um I think you, you, you kind of, you, you maybe even work even harder to be honest because, you know, you've made a bigger bet. You're, you've, you've, you've really, the pressure's on at that point because, you know, no longer is it you and your a few partners that you have to please. You've got outside money that you have to please. So I think if anything, it probably ups the ante a little bit and makes it, um, you know, that much more stressful to be honest. Um, and so I think it definitely, that was the case with, with what we did for sure. Did did things like dress codes change? Did you have like were you coming to 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 work in t-shirt and jeans and then and then all this became like suits and stuff? You know, I don't think that was the case. I mean, it is still Silicon Valley, you know, for God's sake, and 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 that didn't change a whole lot. Did it get a little bit more corporate? Sure, it did. Um, no no question about it. But you know, I mean, could you wear a flip flops and t-shirts and and shorts? Probably not. Um, but you could certainly wear you, you know jeans and a t-shirt and, and you wouldn't you wouldn't get too many strange looks um so you think that it's not a lot of that changed um but sure over time it's a little bit you know tighter i think you know we had to formalize sexual harassment training and you get these different types of training that you'd have to uh, be a part of and that was not great and fun but it's just one of the things that has to happen hmm. right and so, how 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 long were you guys running before you got funding? Boy, um, I think we were probably going for at least I'm trying to think back a year or two before we actually took money. And what were your revenues before, and then what were your revenues like? You know, the, a year before, and then a year after. Um, I I trying to think if I recall the the, the amounts. I mean. We showed pretty steady and consistent growth, you know, not just before, you know, we took money, but afterwards. So, um, you know, but 
I would just say that, you know, the time that we started versus the time that, you know, we left, we, we showed pretty consistent growth in revenue. Um, and, um, yeah, let's leave it at that. I don't, I don't know the exact amount, but, uh, but I do know that we, we were able to successfully kind of continue to grow the company. Yeah, I mean, was there a big upward spike after you took the money that you, you were able to grow more quickly or, or did the growth slow? What, what kind of? You know, I don't, let's see, did it slow? No, I, you know, I think it, it kind of just steadily rose and it, it rose, you know, steadily. It didn't rise dramatically for the reasons we spoke about. At some point, it rose because we were able to scale more. Um, you know, did it decline? Maybe it declined a little bit or profit declined because we were able to, fo- we had to focus in other areas of the business. So, you know, I wouldn't say that it was explosive growth as a result of raising money, but it, it does some things for you that, um, you know, I think are important. So, you know, I wouldn't say the revenues, you know, changed all that much. The, the revenues may have gone up. Did the profit go up? Maybe not because you now you've hired more people. So I can't say that there's there was really a dramatic difference that we saw by virtue of just raising money. You know what I mean? Right. All right. Any, um, any, any points you want to add in on either of the topics of uh, how getting that blue going or uh, raising money? Um, no, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's if, you're, if you're lucky enough to be a part of either starting a great company in a space or raising money, you've succeeded. I mean, you've done what most people will never do in their life and their career. And so I think you have to take a lot of pride in that. I mean, um, it's a lot of work and some, some hardship, but, but if, you're, if you're able to do that, I, I commend you because it's not, not easy. All right, okay. All right, so then the, the next topic I'd like to pick your brain on a little bit is um, buying companies or buying into companies. And you've, in our conversations offline, you've expressed some strong opinions in that area that there's a lot of opportunity there. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the current state of affairs with types of companies is there's a lot of it's a very disjointed um, marketplace. It's you know I think a lot of companies are wondering what to do, and I think that um, you know I think there's a lot of undervalued assets out there, people that are running very successful companies, and I think it's a great time. I, I take you know maybe a contrarian view. Some people think that uh, Google's one and the ad space is is still hot or not hot, but but I think if you look around, there are a lot of companies doing very interesting things. Um, there continue to be a lot of M&A activity in the space and people raising money. And um, I think that just proves the fact that there's a lot of a lot of assets out there that, that uh, were either overlooked or um, people don't really pay attention to. So, um, so I think that there's a lot of opportunity out there if this is a space that you want to stay in. So what do you mean by overlook? I mean, in real estate, you can say a property's been let run down, and you can go in and paint the walls and fix the roof and mow the lawn and turn it around and sell it. Um, it's obviously not the same with a website. So what 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 do you mean by turning it around or or, or overlook? Well, I think a lot of times you can look at a company, and if you've got experience in the space, probably pick up ten or twenty things you could do differently that would would raise revenue. Um, I think, you know, if you can find a set of uh, people that are willing to work hard and you've, you've got the basis of a good company, I think, you know, if you come from having experience or seeing things that have worked in the past, I, I don't think it's very dissimilar to real estate. I think you go in, you paint the walls, you check out the neighborhood, you, 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 you know, you do a lot of things that you probably do with real estate that, 
that would be able to make the company look more interesting than when you first got there. So I don't know that it's very dissimilar to any undervalued asset that you come across, whether it be in business or um, any other any other facet, that you would just figure out what needs to get fixed. And um, assuming you have the tools to do so, you would just go out and start doing it. Um, and uh, go ahead. An example might be um, you 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 as as your skill is um, or one of your skills is is buying CPM. You could go and look at, at companies that aren't doing a very uh, either not doing that at all or aren't doing a very good job with it. And you could go in and, and buy them or invest in them, and then go and start buying media properly for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Adrian. I mean, a lot, a lot of times, you know, people don't know what they don't know. <laughs> in other words, you get caught up in, in a certain way of doing things with your business, and uh, you, you know, you've only known that way. And, and when you when you can come from a different perspective on things and realize there's lots of different ways to do it you can immediately add value because the people that you're buying it from have never seen it that way. And I've just been fortunate enough to see things done in very interesting ways and, um, you know, immediately see where I can apply those same principles to businesses and I think make them worth a lot more money than they are today. So I think that's kind of what I'm speaking about. That's interesting, and and you've you've gone and basically done this with your own money. Do you want to talk about the the investment you've made? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, uh, I've more recently got involved with a, a company that I think fits the profile that is of great interest to me. It's a company that's been around for for a while, um, Lucky Surf, and um, you know, I, I've been able to take resources and invested in that, and. Um, I'm seeing if I'm right, <laughs> and I hope I am because, um, you know, a lot of time, investment, money goes into making these things work, and so I'm trying to find, I believe I found, an asset that um, is undervalued, that I can take my expertise and, and make something better than it was when I found it, and so, you know, um, I'm testing the theory right now, and um, it's it's... You know, it's a humbling experience. The, the revenues are not what I was used to, but they're a profitable company and exhibit a lot of the things that I think are important in um, in a company that, that ultimately becomes something greater than what it is right now. Um, so I've been involved now for about three months in an operational level, and I think we're making a lot of really great progress in uh, making the company something better than it was when I found it. Have, they, have you taken them through sexual harassment training yet? <laughs> no, not quite yet. We're, uh, we're, we're doing things like um, formatting spreadsheets and changing uh, macros on spreadsheets and uh, really fun and exciting stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope I never have to be through that training again. Yeah, I mean, the way you're describing that before, it sounds like an episode of the TV show The Office. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. You know, no doubt. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. I don't I particularly enjoy it. So in terms of this, um, so in, in Lucky Surf, um, in terms of the investment you've made in Lucky Surf, and you've come on, I guess, are you the CEO now? Yes. Uh, there's two divisions. There's a interactive uh, division, um, and there's a publishing division. And so... Um, Danielle Laurie is a gentleman that I've known for years and years that started a business, the business Lucky Surf in 99. 
is now focused on the agency business, which is doing quite well. And I'm now CEO of the publishing business. Um, and uh, and those are really the collection of assets they've built up to this point. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking over a lot of the great work that Danielle has done up to this point and trying to make it something bigger than it is. And so when you were looking around for companies, is that what you were looking for, companies that you could help them buy media? Or what was the... What was the, if you can, I mean, tell me if you can, obviously, and if you can't, no problem, but what was the, the profile of undervalued companies that you were looking for that you felt lucky so fitted the profile? Well, I think the first and, the first and foremost thing is, 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 is it a profitable company? I mean, or if it's not, do you have specific plans in place to make it profitable in a short amount of time? And so the biggest thing that I find lucky, sir, for you is despite the fact that it's gone through quite a bit in the space and the time it's been doing, uh, it's remained profitable, which I think is 90, you're 90% there if I can find that particular quality. Um, you know, so that was, that was probably the first thing that, that, that interested me in it. And for me, it's, it's really a challenge. I've always, um, you know, been, either been an employee somewhere or had to start something with, with people. And I've never really taken something over from somebody. And so I wanted to take that on as a challenge, uh, professionally. Uh, to see if I can take something that, um, you know, has fits a certain profile, profitable, but small, maybe struggling, and it, it seemed like a fun challenge for me to take something and make it bigger than it is and take this asset that's been not doing a whole lot over the years and uh, see if I can apply what I know and make it better. And I hope I'm right. <laughs> I, I could be wrong, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, that I'm at, the, at the end of this I'm, uh, I'm right. And well, I guess we'll check back in in six months or a year, and uh, and, and we'll find out. Yeah, I think we will. <laughs> cool. Um, is there anything else then on 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 buying companies you'd like to talk about? Um. Hmm. Well, no, I think. I, how do you do it think, and make sure that the money goes in the right place? Obviously, in your instance, you stepped in. You you haven't been an investor. You yes, you're investing, but you're investing and managing your own money. So, therefore, you're controlling the spend, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that um, you, you, you proceed with caution. You look at the team. You, you try to structure it in a way that, that, that makes sure there's no ambiguity in the deal. Um, uh, you, you know, you do all your homework uh, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, what you're buying is what you think it is and that, you know, the initial investors feel good about your, your involvement there and are probably behind you. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's how you proceed. So I was talking with one of my friends about this topic, actually, of investing, and his comment was um, that it, it can be – he likes real estate because when you buy real estate, you're buying something and you actually have something to, to hold and you can see that over time in general real estate's a pretty solid investment. And But investing in something like an, an Internet company, I mean, who knows? The guys might be just out there drinking bottles of Dom Perignon. Um well, I slightly, I slightly disagree with that assessment. I mean, you know, real estate is, 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 you know, I would just say that it's, it's what you buy at. I mean, real estate can be a great investment if you buy it at the right price. I think, you know, if you buy it at the wrong price, real estate can be an absolutely horrific investment, uh, as many people are finding out right now. So I think the same applies to any business. I mean, it's what you buy it at. It's what, it's, it's what you're buying and the price you're buying it at. And it can be, you know, uh, equally, if not uh, much, much, much more lucrative than real estate. Um, 
you know, with real estate, you've got tenants. So you got to deal with tenants. I mean, I, I guess there's no easy answer. There's no easy way to just come up with a great investment strategy. I think it's all about finding what works for you, whether it is real estate or it's stocks or bonds or running companies. Um, for me, I think running companies and being involved in a space that I love is far more interesting than real estate. Um, so I guess it's, you know, each their own. Alright. Um, that's a, a, any, do you have any points then you'd like to add in closing or anything else we should, we should talk about? Um, no. I, I think, I think hopefully I've, I've been able to, to, to hopefully give people a, my perspective on things. It, it could be right, it could be wrong. It's just my perspective. And, and I say, as always, Adrian, I think I appreciate the time and the effort you spend on these things. So, um, yeah, it's probably it for me. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Okay, then take care.